verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This fall, we've been in a series here at City Church called DNA because DNA are the the essential life-building blocks, right, of life itself. And I was with a group of pastors the last several days. I lead a cohort of pastors here in Atlanta. And one thing that we talked about, all of us, is that we're all as pastors in the exact same place right now. We are all rebuilding our churches. Um, There's a sense that we're replanting our churches right now on the other side of a -a once-in-a-lifetime event called the COVID pandemic. And, and so, for such a time as this, this is the reason why we're doing this series. I think I've mentioned that before, but I just want to get clear again. This is why we're doing that series. And if I had to choose, other than the first week where we did the gospel, we'd say, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? As being the, the fundamental building block, if you will, of the fundamental building block. If I had to choose one other week that I think is more fundamental than any other apart from that one, It's this week. Discipleship. The whole purpose of the church. Discipleship. Matt Ruloff's last week, he gave you a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's actually one I've used before, and so you've heard this probably. But I want you to hear it again. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. They are not doing that. All cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. The reason why I'm your pastor isn't so you can hear a good sermon, though that's part of it, but it is a means to an end. The sermon this morning is a means to an end. It's for your life. It's that you might know the purpose of your life, to go further up and further in with Christ as a disciple. This morning, I want to explore that with you. And I'm going to break tradition instead of three things, two things this morning. We're going to talk about, I know, I, I hear the, the, the sadness in your voices this morning. Um, but two things this morning. Number one, I want you to see how fundamentally unconditional discipleship is. There's no, there's no second plan here. This discipleship, unconditional to Jesus, is what we're all about. But second, it's relational. So the challenge is that it's unconditional. But the second thing is an invitation. It's relational. And what I want to invite you to do this morning is, is much like when you're lost and, and maybe there's someone who's going to take you to the site where you need to be. And so you, you follow closely behind them, so closely to them that if they go through a yellow light, you go through that yellow light with them, even if it turns red on you, right? Because you don't want to lose. And if someone gets between you, you don't want to get lost. And, and so for some of us this morning, we might say, you know, I don't actually know 
what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this morning, I want you to be directed. And so I want you to follow closely and hear Jesus say, follow me closely more than anything else. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's jump in with the first thing here. In verse 25, in terms of unconditionality, what happens here is in Luke's gospel, Jesus uh, is approaching Jerusalem, the last several days of his life, actually. And so all the crowds of all the three-plus years of ministry on earth have been, have been coming to this point, culminating, as it were. And, and, and because of, of just who Jesus was and, and what he said, so many people were following him. And what's interesting is, he doesn't, the, the text doesn't say that he turned around and looked at his disciples. And he said, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Who does he talk to? He talks to the crowd. He talks to all these well-wishers following after him. And he knows that they don't yet know what it yet means to be a disciple. And so he challenges them. Here's what I want you to first see. There's no uh, levels of discipleship in Christ. There's no, like, uh, well, for those of you who go to seminary, like you, Scott. Uh, for those of you in full-time ministry. For those who, who are, quote-unquote, devoted to their faith. And then there's the rest of us. No, there's only one call for all of us, myself and you, and all points in between. That all of us together have been called to the same task, and that is to follow him. And we may say we're doing it better on some days than other days, but it is the same call. But I also want to say this to you here at the outset. All of you right now are being made into disciples. The question is, who's discipleship? I loved Kristen's prayer this morning. She prayed for this. She said the world, she didn't use the word disciple, but that's what she prayed, didn't she? She said there's all these things that are happening around us in social media, in the headlines of the news, and all the different divisions and uh, strife, political and racial, and other, all these different things. And, and there, is a, there is a worldview that's being pressed into you regarding your sexuality, regarding your economics, regarding how you understand relationships and ethics and the calling and vocation. There are all these different things being pressed into you right now. Jesus knows that you're not neutral, that the culture's not neutral. And I want to show you that and prove that to you because of what happens beginning in verse 26. There are two things I want you to see about in the unconditional nature of discipleship with Jesus. Here's the first one. He says, I want you to forsake everything. He says this in verse 26. If anyone comes to me, it does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, I wonder what you heard when you heard the word hate. You know, 10 years ago, the only other time I've ever preached this passage, and so I, I don't even remember my own sermons three weeks later, much less 10 years ago, but I did look, look back and I did a series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And you can see why I included this passage in that series, right? Well, what did you hear when you heard the word hate? Well, there are two definitions of hate in Scripture. One is an emotional one. And so often when we think of hate, that's what we think of, but that's not what's being used here. What's being used here is what's called a comparative. By comparison, hate. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to the heart of the culture, and he's challenging it for its supremacy. So in, in the ancient Near East, 2,000 years ago, and by the way, this is still pretty true today in the Middle East. It's also true in a lot of cultures that are traditional cultures. And perhaps some of you would say, I came from a culture like that. And what Jesus is doing, he's going to the traditional culture where family is your everything. Family is your identity. Family is where you are defined. If you want to know who you are, you just need to know 
Who is his mom or dad or her mom and dad? What family? What is their last name? Right? This is huge. You talk about genealogy. I mean, this is, this is ground zero for genealogy. It was in the ancient Near East. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going to the very core of identity. And he is saying, I want your identity. I want to be first in your life. I want to be your supreme affection. Years ago, when Kirsten and I were working in an international ministry before I was a pastor, we were working with a church uh, primarily of immigrants that came out of India. And, and, and so uh, we're, for about five years we worked with them and they had a national conference every year. And, and one of the things that, that would happen there is that we would work with primarily second generation. These are the young people. That's what our, our primary calling was for this conference. It was to do counseling and teaching and preaching and so forth while the adults were in their own meetings. And one of the things that we, uh, we discovered is that there was this great divide between the first and the second generation. And, and for the first generation, they had made tremendous sacrifices on behalf of their children. They had, they had left their home country of India. They had left much of their culture behind for the American dream for opportunity. And they had made great sacrifices for their children. But, but their children were straddling two cultures. Their, their children had one foot in, in mom and dad's culture, but they had their under, other foot in Western individualized culture. And so uh, night after night, and Kirsten remembers this, until the wee hours of the morning, these young people would come to us and say, I don't know what to do. We're like, what's the problem? And they would say, my parents want to arrange a marriage for me. And, 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 but, but that's not who I'm in love with. And right there, they were just, I mean, this is like, we had never discovered this before, and we were seeing the pressure, the pinch points of culture. And, and they're like, what do we do? And we'd have these long conversations. I remember another young man, he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. That's what he wanted to do with his life. And you know what? He was funny, too. Like, he would throw some of his jokes at us while we are meeting with him. But let me tell you, not a popular career decision for his parents, okay? Not a popular career decision. Like, what do you do? Jesus is saying, and whether it's a, a traditional culture or more of a Western individualized culture, Jesus is saying, I have to be your supreme affection. And he's saying, like, before, you, you, you know, talking about your parents on earth, before listening to them, he says, does this align with my voice? And vice versa for the children versus their parents. The only thing I can come close to in Scripture beyond what we're looking at today is a, is a passage in, in Genesis chapter 29. And if you know the story, Jacob is, is in love with a woman named Rachel. And, and so he, in order to win Rachel's hand, remember this is a very traditional culture, he works for Rachel's uncle, whose name is Laban. And in order to win Rachel's hand, this one that he loves so deeply and dearly, he's willing to, to uh, sacrifice seven years of his life to work for for Laban in order to win her hand. And only at the end of the seven years does he get her. And if you remember the passage in Genesis chapter 29, Laban plays a trick on Jacob. Jacob himself was a trickster. And he plays a trick on Jacob. And so in the middle, of, it's, it's dark at nighttime, and to make a long story short, it's not Rachel who comes into the bedroom, but the sister of Rachel, Leah. And, and they are covenantially connected sexually. And to make a long story short, this is weird, I know, from a Western vintage point, but now Leah's his wife. And it says right after this, after he's tricked, it says right after that, in quotes, Jacob hated Leah. Now why is it in quotes? For the same reason it is here, hated. It means that by comparison to his love for Rachel, Leah was secondary. He didn't emotionally hate Leah, 
but he could not love Leah because he was tricked into her. He could not possibly love her the way that he loved the one that he had sacrificed seven years of his life. What Jesus is saying is, I must be your Rachel. I have to be your everything. And the question I think he would ask us this morning is, are you willing to sacrifice your whole life for me? For us, as it, as it were, in that relationship. But I want you to also hear, at the very end of this passage, in verse 33, something he might say more to us here in the West in particular. Because here's what he says at the very end of this passage. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And he says that right after in verse 26 where he says, not just your family, but also your own life. You see, for us in the West who make a... a um, uh, like freedom, for instance, is a great example. Like we, we resonate with the idea of freedom. I mean, we're the, the home of the free, the land of the brave, that sort of thing And here in the West. And, and if you want to just see how the words of Jesus can be a pinch point for us in the West, just bring up the issue of masking. Because in doing so, you're bringing up the issue of freedom. Right? And, and as soon as I say that, all of you probably fell on one side of the, of the, of the political divide or not when I said that. Why? Because that is our issue. And what Jesus is saying is your freedom has to be secondary to my call. That's not to take a position on masking right now. My point in saying that is everything has to be subsumed to me, including your understanding of your freedom and your individuality. I think it has tremendous impact on our understanding of sexuality. It has tremendous impact on our understanding of our own personal finances and how we leverage those. But what's for us, what is God calling us to leverage that for his kingdom and so forth? You feel the you feel the tension right now. You should. Because what Jesus is doing, remember, this is the crowd. They've been following him, and now he's about to go to the cross. And don't you know that right after he said this, the crowd began to thin? I we took uh, my oldest Karis to Covenant College this past uh, weekend. And Covenant College, if you're not familiar, it is the flagship college for our denomination, PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. And, and uh, we were there because it was a college preview day. We're now in a different era of our lives, thinking about college and so forth. And, and we had a great time, didn't we? And while we're there, there's a big seal. When you go in, you, you see it everywhere. And it says this, in all things Christ preeminent. I love that. In all things Christ preeminent. Another word for that is supreme. I must be your Rachel. I must be your supreme affection. And don't not love your family. But by comparison, it almost looks like that. In other words, what he's saying is, the problem isn't your love, but that you don't love enough. I must be the the crucible. I must be the foundation. I must be the source point. I must be your everything. And when you love me well, you then learn, to love your family well. You then to learn to, to love yourself well. You then learn to, to project your sexuality well. You then learn to leverage your money well. You see how that works? It's paradoxical. The call to hate is actually called to love, it turns out. That's the first of the two things here about the unconditionality. But here's the second thing. Because it is a call to forsake our lives, we must then count the cost. We must absolutely count the cost. I won't reread verses 28 through 32 with you. But Jesus gives two illustrations, two examples is what he's doing there. He wants people to understand, hey, what does this mean exactly? 
uh, what are examples? And the first one is really good because he says it's like someone who wants to, to do uh, a building project. And in the process, they get halfway done and they realize they're out of money. They didn't plan properly. He says that's not counting the cost. I know this really well because Kirsten and I are right now are about to do a renovation on our bathrooms in our house. And so you may not know this, but if you have been to our house, you know that we have very small bathrooms. These are Craftsman bungalow homes built in 1929 in our case. Very small rooms in the house, including the bathroom. And right now, I share this bathroom with my wife as well as three, my three girls. Okay? And if you saw the size of it, it's the size of a postage stamp. I kid you not. When we go to basic motels, I get excited for the bathroom because there's a double vanity. You know, almost always there's a double vanity that's bigger than mine. And there's like the shower is always bigger than mine. It's the size, it's like a European shower, if you know what I mean, right? And so after 16 years of this, and with three teenage girls in the house, uh, we're like, we need to do some work here on the renovation. But we had a commitment. We said, we will not do this until we have the cash to do it. So we don't want to be in a place where we're financing or in debt or anything like that. And so that's exactly what's going on here. We're having to count the costs. And we said, do we have enough money to do this? Well, and we're like, ah, you know, and, and then we wait until we knew that we did. Jesus is saying, know what the cost is. And here's the thing. This is not like your cell phone bill where there are hidden fees. Jesus says, let me tell you what the fee is. Let me tell you what the cost is. It's in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is the cost? It's your life. I missed this, but let me go back. Galatians 2.20, listen to what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is it going to cost you? Your life. Look, let me put it to you this way. If I haven't convinced you already about the importance of discipleship, please hear me on this. If you believe there is a God, so forget about anything else beyond that. Just start with the basics. If you believe there is a God in the world, here's what that means. It means that you believe that there is a designer in the world. He designed the world, and he made you. So how could your life not be forfeit everything to him? It's like anything you create as an artist, if you're an artist. Anything you create in your home, if you build it, it belongs to you. You, you design it. And there's a sense that in, in having children, for those of you who are parents, right, you don't own your children, but you're responsible for your children. How much more so for God in your life? How could it be that you believe there's a God, but you have if conditional statements in your life? How could it be that you believe that, that Jesus is Lord as we sung here just a second ago, but when it comes to the culture's understanding of sexuality, you're like, that's a bridge too far. I love you, Jesus, but, or when it comes to your personal finance, I love you, Jesus, but this money's mine, right? A disciple has their hands open at all times in everything, in every aspect of their being. God, command me, send me, as it were, he says to us. We are either all in or we're not in at all. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's how unconditional following Jesus is. We're either all in or we're not really in at all. Dallas Willard put it this way in a book called Spirit of the Disciplines. In the heart of a disciple, there is a desire and there is a decision or settled intent. The disciple of Christ deserves above all else to be like him. 
The disciple is one who intends upon becoming Christ-like. And so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. I want to ask you a question at the end of this point, And that is, are you looking for the comfortable life as a follower of Jesus? Because if you are, you're looking for the wrong life. You might as well go ahead and abandon the faith now. Because in calling yourself a Christian, you're identifying yourself with the one who in the Chronicles of Narnia is Aslan the lion. You remember that story where Lucy, one of the kids, goes up and sees Aslan, the ferocious lion, and, 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 and Lucy says to Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, these talking beavers in the story, a crazy story, and goes up to, to Mrs. Beaver and says, yeah, Aslan, is, is he safe? And remember what she says, oh, no, child. He is not safe, but he is good. Jesus is good for you, but he is not safe. He is the untamed lion in your life who will lead you to an untamed life. And I promise you this much, it will be adventuresome, it will be fearful at times, but it will not be boring. To follow Jesus in every aspect of your being is never to be bored in your life. It is, it is to have your hands open, it is to say, again, with something like your finances, saying, I have all of eternity, you are my treasure. What is my money on earth in light of the fact that I have eternity with you? It is to put those things in perspective. And I'm telling you, man, when I meet people who are just wild and free as followers of Jesus with their money and in providing for God's kingdom in various ways and domains, I never see boredom in my life. I, I never see those people are always joyous. They're always spirit-filled. Why? Because he's the untamed lion. He's like, with you, you will never be bored. Trust me with this. But here's the good news. I, as hard as, as that may be to hear some of this stuff, the tension points, the pinch points in our lives, the good news is there's an invitation here. And know this, there's an invitation to a relationship with him. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it's to follow him. It's to be in a relationship with him. Intimacy. What's fascinating is that at the beginning of the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus, when calling the 12 disciples to follow him, he says, come and follow me. It's almost identical phrase to me, which he's twice here in this passage, where he says, come to me and come after me. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not calling you to a list of things to do so that you might have a relationship with God or, or find nirvana someday, right? Like if you were to go, for instance, to, to um, or if you were to, let's say, if you're interested in converting to, let's say, Islam, and you say, what, what does it mean for me to convert to Islam? No one in Islam will ever tell you you need to follow Muhammad. If, if Muhammad were here, he would say, don't follow me. No, 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 no. I'm, just, I'm his prophet. Right? And if you look at Hinduism or you look at Buddhism, that's even more non-relational. You will not see a call to follow Buddha. You will not see a call to follow the avatars within Hinduism. Only in Christianity. Is there a personal call? And he says, if you want to know who God is, you need to know who I am and follow me. And one of the things that the rabbis would say in Judaism 2,000 years ago is, is this. It was a blessing if you were a follower of a rabbi as a disciple. would be, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And those, those, those dusty roads to Jericho and Jerusalem, the idea was that you were following so closely to, to your rabbi that he would kick up dust from his sandals upon you and you'd be 
covered by the time you got to the village. You'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi. He's like, you're following him so closely that you look like him. You have his dust. What Jesus, I think, is saying here is that I want you to be so close to me as to be covered with my dust. And, and you know who got to experience that? The 12 disciples. You know, the call to discipleship is to the whole crowd here. But the 12, what do they know? For three and a half years, they had experienced unfounded intimacy with Jesus. They knew exactly what they were being called to. It wasn't to a list of do's and don'ts, but to intimacy. And I think one of the most profound passages, and this is where I'm going to tie it all up, I think one of the most profound examples of this is actually at the very end of John's Gospel. In John chapter 21, Peter, after the betrayal, after the crucifixion, and then the resurrection, Peter finds himself on the shores of Galilee. And if you know this scene, it's when Jesus takes the disciples and he takes Peter aside, but still within earshot of the others. And says, Peter, do you love me? And remember, Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Since a frustration almost in his voice, it looks like in the text. And how does Jesus respond each time that Peter answers yes? Feed my sheep. Here's the thing. When you realize that following Jesus is not about a list of do's and don'ts, but about a relationship, he not only calls you to follow him, but he prepares you to make followers of Jesus of others. The call to follow him is a call to make disciples. If you are a follower of Christ today, your call isn't just to follow him. It is to invite people into a relationship with Jesus as well. And the more that you model, the more that you are a little Christ in the life of others, the more people want to see who Jesus is and go further up and further in. What is the evidence of that? It's in those places I just mentioned, your ethics, your relationships, your workspace, around the the water cooler on Zoom maybe, right? Maybe not face-to-face anymore. Who knows? In your sexuality, in your finance, all these different areas, you can say, I am a little Christ. That when the Scriptures say, This is what your sexuality, this is what your finance, this is what it looks like to be a participant in the community, the life of the church, what Matt preached on last week. You can say, I am a little Christ, or I'm yearning to look more and more like him. My hope and prayer on the other side of this pandemic, as we, in a sense, replant City Church for the, the next generation, for the next decade to come, my hope and prayer is that the city of Atlanta will see little Christ among us, And not just Christians saying, I want to go further up and further in, but people who are not yet his followers would say, I want to know more about who you are, Jesus, on account of seeing your followers. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for your word. You call us to be little Christ. You call us to follow you so closely as to be covered with your dust. And yet the reality is there's a gap between our expressions and our commitments, at least verbally and vocally in prayer and in singing. And even listening to the word this morning, there's a gap between that and what we experience in life. Sometimes it's because, as Kristen said in her prayer earlier, we are distracted by the affairs of the world. Sometimes it's not even about the world, it's about ourselves. It's about our resistance, our lack of desire to make you supreme, the highest affection. Jesus, change your hearts. Holy Spirit, you have resurrection power. For Christ himself was resurrected 
And we, as Paul said, were resurrected with him. And so may we live with the resurrection power in our lives, no matter how much it cost us, financially, sexually, relationally, whatever it might be, no matter what it cost us, that we would say, Jesus, you are supreme. You are our Rachel, further up and further in. May it be. We praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Now I come to a time of confession. This is a, an opportunity that we can acknowledge that we like fall short of the glory of God. What in Scott's sermon perhaps uh, is, is pricking your heart? What is the Holy Spirit pointing, saying like, oh yeah, that, I can definitely resonate with that. We're first going to uh, corporately confess together, and then we're going to take a minute to silently confess. So let's confess together. Jesus, we are undone by your call to follow you by renouncing anything apart from you, supreme in our lives. Forgive us for placing other people and things above you first in our lives. You told us to pick up the cross and follow you, but we have made ourselves captains of our own destinies. Have mercy on us and our self-discipleship this way from you. Thank you, Jesus. You did not put down your cross, but lovingly went to the cross to bring us true, full, and abundant life. Make us into little Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Take a minute and confess silently. <laughs> 